0: It's a bird, it's a plane, no wait, it's a drone? Maybe you've wondered how researchers and farmers can use technology to manage their crops more effectively, or maybe you just think drones are cool. Either way, today we'll learn about how taking a picture can translate to soybean management practices. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we'll learn about cool research that you should know about straight from experts. I'm your host, Julia Cubans, and joining us today is Austin Dobbles, a PhD candidate at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Agronomy and Plant Genetics. Austin, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It'll be fun.
0: Austin, I know you grew up on a farm. How did that influence your decision to work with plants?
1: Oh, great question, Julia. Well, I grew up on a farm in central Illinois, and in high school I always really liked numbers and science so I knew I wanted to go to college and pursue a career that had more to do with science and numbers but it was at college I realized that I could actually learn things in my classes that could translate back to the farm and I think that was kind of where my passion stemmed I took a breeding course at Iowa State we were actually applying what we learned in the classroom to what was happening out in the field so actually relating classroom academics to improving soybean production and soybean management and soy breeding. But yeah it all kind of started with math and science.
0: So what brought you to soybean? Did you grow up on a soybean farm?
1: Yeah so I grew up on a corn and soybean farm. We'd grow corn one year and soybean the next in a rotation and so I've been around soybeans pretty much my whole life and I actually took a co-op at Iowa State where I worked with the soybean breeder and that's where I got really hooked on soybean breeding. It was actually through some summer internships with seed companies that I kind of even further grew my passion. And my dad always asks me when I come back home, when's the next 100 bushel per acre yielding soybean variety going to come? In order to yield high gains on the farm, it comes from a combination of genetics plus the environment plus proper management practices. And so... Having a better understanding of the genetics and improving the genetic side of it is where I really grew my passion for soybean breeding.
0: Before we go on to talk more about the research that you do specifically, what are soybeans even used for that we grow in Minnesota?
1: (laughs) Well, soybeans have a large amount of protein in the seed and a large amount of oil in the seed. So actually, most of the soybeans grown are used for animal feed. They feed pigs and chickens using that protein. And then also, if you ever buy vegetable oil, Vegetable oil is 100% soybean oil.
0: Okay, why don't they just call it soybean oil? That's a great question. <laughs> I
1: think it's a marketing thing where people are more likely to purchase vegetable oil versus soybean oil. I don't know why. So they're grown for protein, for animal feed, and as well as oil. Our program is actually unique in that we breed other varieties for niche markets. So we'll bring varieties that are small seeded for something called natto. This is like a fermented soybean product, very common in the Asian markets. We also breed for tofu. So those are like higher protein with larger seeds. And we also breed for edamame. Those are much smaller markets compared to the amount used for animal feed. But that's how our breeding program fits in is we breed for these niche markets that some of the larger seed companies would not breed for. And the other thing I'm really excited about in our program is we're breeding a heart-healthy oil. And so what we can do is we can reduce the amount of trans fat in the oil through breeding and selection by increasing the amount of a certain acid in the seed, which is going to be more heart-healthy in the end.
0: Cool. Everyone's always looking for that. So one other question that might seem obvious to some people, we talk about breeding a lot. What does that process look like just in, you know, a very condensed version of it?
1: I would say it's a numbers game. So in a condensed version, we're taking two soybean lines, we're crossing them.
0: What does that mean to cross them?
1: We're sexually mating two different soybean varieties and getting offspring from that. And those are going to vary similar to like how brothers and sisters would vary. From that, we inbreed them and then we test them. So it's a combination of making a cross, creating variation, And then selecting upon that variation and when we do that over time we gradually make increases in the traits we're selecting on we'll select for a high yielding line and then we'll use that again as a parent and cross it to another line create variation select the highest yielding continue so on and so forth
0: how long does this process take usually
1: we're always trying to find ways to make a more efficient through using novel techniques like genomic prediction or improved phenotypic selection. But in a nutshell, it'll take eight to 10 years probably.
0: Just for one one line or variety to come out.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Sounds like a big time commitment for that. Yeah, the
1: biggest thing is it's really a numbers game. And so if we have more space and we can test more lines, then we can make faster gains.
0: Cool. Thanks for, for sharing. You're currently working in a soybean breeding lab. What is the overarching goal of the projects you work on? What are we looking for in these soybeans?
1: The overall goal of our soybean breeding lab is to produce new soybean varieties for farmers, specifically farmers in Minnesota. So we produce varieties anywhere from zero zero maturity group all the way down to maturity group twos and threes. And so the goal of our lab is to produce new varieties that the farmers can grow, but also combining that with stress tolerance. So plants that we can grow in our field that can overcome the various biotic and abiotic stresses in that field and in that environment.
0: Can we define a couple terms in case our listeners don't know? So what does it mean to have soybeans in different maturity groups?
1: Soybeans are photoperiod sensitive, meaning that they respond to the length of the day. The growing season is shorter in Minnesota than it is, for example, in Illinois and Iowa from frost to frost. And so we need to have soybeans adapted to that growing window. Essentially, it's how quickly it'll respond to its environmental conditions and mature in a growing period.
0: And you also mentioned that you're looking at abiotic and biotic stresses. What are examples of some of those stresses that people might be more familiar with?
1: Yeah, so the most common abiotic stress would be something like drought or lack of water. That's probably the largest abiotic stress, followed by soil chemical properties, so nutrient stress. Or what I work on is iron deficiency chlorosis, which is a lack of available iron to the plant. Biotic stress would be more like a fungus or a bacteria or a nematode that's causing stress to the plant.
0: With your iron deficiency, chlorosis, what do you see in a plant that is lacking that iron?
1: We'll see yellowing of the soybean leaves. So a good healthy soybean plant will be nice and big and green and healthy and putting on pods and putting on seeds that we can then harvest and sell those seeds. In a plant that's undergoing stress, the plant becomes yellow because it's not getting enough iron to leave. It's not able to uptake the iron from the soil because it's in the unavailable form to the plant. When the plant doesn't have iron, similar to how humans might need iron to survive, plants also need iron for photosynthesis. Without iron, they'll become yellow, they'll become stunted or dwarfed, and in some cases, plants will become brown and die. And in some farmer's fields, they won't be able to harvest any soybeans at the end of the season because they all died due to the stress.
0: Okay, yeah, that sounds really serious. Would this be something that a farmer would see across the whole field uniformly, or would it be patchy? Are there fields that people just don't see this at all in?
1: The main fields you'll see, iron deficiency, chlorosis, are on those fields with high pH, so a pH above 7.5, as well as fields that have high amounts of calcium carbonates. And it's not going to be uniform across a field, so... Some parts of the field will have larger amounts of stress caused by IDC compared to other parts of the field.
0: A high pH means that the soil is more basic, right?
1: Yes, more okay. basic.
0: So if people are not familiar with calcium carbonate, it's if you take a Tums or something like that. That's essentially <laughs> right. what we're doing. You're taking down the acid in your stomach. If there's too much of that in the soil, mm-hmm. it is there's not enough acid in the soil.
1: Yep, and this is actually... Not really a problem in some states. It's mostly a problem in Minnesota. Along the Red River Valley, we'll see a lot of iron chlorosis symptoms, but in fields like where I grew up, we didn't have iron deficiency chlorosis because of the soil properties.
0: In your program, what are you doing to deal with this problem? What would make a soybean more tolerant to this issue?
1: When a farmer has a field that's prone to this stress, his best option is to grow a variety or a cultivar that can overcome that stress. His other options might include adding a nutrient to the soil called an iron chelate, so basically applying the iron in the available form so that the plants can overcome that. But that's very expensive, and you can cost as much as $20 per acre to apply that nutrient. and still not perfect, so coupling that iron chelate product along with a soybean cultivar that is tolerant to the stress is really the best option. So our breeding program tests potential new varieties every year for tolerance to the stress. So when you go to the grocery store, for example, you might see apples come in all different shapes and sizes. Some are red, some are green. Well, similar to that in soybeans, soybeans might all kind of look the same, but they have different levels of overcoming the stress.
0: So are those tolerant varieties, what makes them tolerant to it? Are they, are they processing iron in the soil differently or do they just need less iron to survive?
1: The exact mechanism isn't known. What we do know is that soybeans will excrete protons, so hydrogen ions, into the soil. And then through that, it acidifies the soil, making the iron available for plant uptake. So the exact mechanism isn't known, but we do know that there's a wide variation in how plants respond to the stress.
0: Are you just throwing soybeans at the wall, so to speak, and seeing what what sticks, what works?
1: Well, kind of. So we know that one plant is tolerant to the stress. If we make a cross to another plant that's tolerant to the stress, the resulting outcome is likely a plant that's also tolerant, but that might not yield well in another environment. So it's it's stacking these different trait combinations so we can find the optimal levels of different traits we're interested in.
0: Okay, so now that we have some background information, let's take a break before we talk more about your research specifically. Hi there, it's Julia. If this is your first episode of Hooked on Science, welcome. If it's not, welcome back. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. Austin and I had a lot of fun recording it. I get to work with soybeans a little bit in my own research, but it's not the main focus of my projects, so I learned a lot talking with Austin, and I hope you'll learn a lot listening. If you're a newcomer, this podcast is one of my PhD projects. The purpose is to compare traditional scientific communication methods, like poster and PowerPoint presentations, with this podcast, which is a relatively new way to communicate information. It's been a lot of work, but I'm learning a ton and having so much fun conducting these interviews and producing these episodes, so I hope you're enjoying them. If you liked today's episodes, spread the word to anyone you think needs a little more science in their life. In order to make this research as effective as possible, I need as many people to listen as I can get. So tell your friends, tell your family, and tell your plumber, hey, they need something to listen to while they're doing the dirty work. And make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to Hooked on Science wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, do you know someone that's conducting interesting research? So far, I have been mainly focused on the natural sciences, but I would love to include some folks who are working in the social sciences, too. All science is welcome. Anyone who is interested can send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com or find the co-host nomination form on the Facebook page. Speaking of social media, stay up to date with all Hooked on Science news by following the pod on Instagram or Facebook, at Hooked on Science Pod, or on Twitter, at Hooked on Science. New episodes are released every other Wednesday, so mark your calendar. With that, let's get back to the show. Austin, how do you set up an experiment to assess? iron deficiency chlorosis.
1: What we need to do first is identify a field that has this stress, that has the soil conditions.
0: So this isn't a stress you're introducing. Yeah, we're identifying
1: existing farmer's fields that have high pH soils and fields with high amounts of calcium carbonates in the soil that have a known history of this stress. And then what we need to do after finding the field is we need to plant our different varieties in that field. And then after that, we need to phenotype them or basically visually look at them and identify which ones are performing better than others by some sort of ranking system. And then from that, we can inform breeding decisions and selection strategies based on the lines or the genotype that perform best in that field.
0: Okay, so how many many varieties or lines are you looking at generally in one of these fields?
1: In one year, we'll look at probably around 4,000 plots of three-foot-long stretches of soybean plants for this stress.
0: People have to go out and manually score these or visually look at each plot to assess them. How... How does that work?
1: Yeah, so we need to get a number to each line in the field, or each plot in the field. And so in the past, what we've done is we've gone to the field with a piece of paper, clipboard, and a pen, and set up in a row column grid in the field. So it's kind of like an xy-coordinate system. And so every single plot, we would walk up to, visually look at it, and rate it on a 1 through 5 scale. 1 means very good, very healthy, nice, big, green plants five means basically dead the plants were totally taken out by this stress and they did not perform well at all and we do that a few times during the growing season usually in early july when it's really hot out
0: okay wow that sounds (laughs) both uncomfortable and like it would take a very long time
1: yeah so it's a field site about three hours away from st paul campus here so it's three hour drive out there probably six to eight hours with a crew of two to four people and then the three hour drive back it is pretty time sensitive And the other thing is, it's very subjective. So one person might rate something very healthy, but someone else might look at it and say, oh, no, that's not doing as well. So it's kind of a subjective measure based on the human eye. In addition, at the end of a long day, you might say, oh, I don't even want to take notes anymore. So you start just writing numbers on a clipboard, or you might get off on your XY coordinate system and start ranking the wrong genotypes improperly.
0: I imagine that could have a lot of negative repercussions for the research that you're doing.
1: Exactly. If we recommend a farmer, this genotype is going to perform well, but it was because a human raider misinterpreted that field observation, that would have negative consequences in the end. I mean, these get tested multiple years, but it's good to know the right numbers every year.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we have talked about how you manually assess it, but you're looking at how to mechanically assess yeah. this same thing.
1: We take... Many hours to take subjective notes and what we can do is we can actually take pictures of the plots and with the picture we can actually quantify how much of a given plot is green and healthy versus yellow and stressed and brown and chlorotic and dead. So basically we can take pictures of the plots from a camera equipped to a drone and fly autonomously so completely automatically over the field with the drone capturing images of every single plot in that field.
0: Outside of the stress of the plot, if the drone is flying around this autonomous flight path, how do you keep it in the field? How doesn't it just go rogue and go fly somewhere else taking pictures?
1: The drone has GPS, similar to, I guess, smartphones or other devices. But basically, it uses the GPS to know where it's at and... It will fly a pre-programmed route, and it won't leave that route.
0: How long would it take to take these measurements using a drone?
1: To cover that same field that took eight hours before to walk, takes about five to seven minutes to fly. Very, very quick. And then we have all these images, and we've developed pipelines and computer programs to analyze those images and machine learning approaches to quantify the exact proportion of the plot that is healthy.
0: So in your research specifically, what did you do with this information?
1: First was developing the pipeline for image collection, how to analyze the images, and how to get the numbers back onto a spreadsheet relating the genotype to the level of stress it's occurring. I sort of took that a step further, and I'm looking for associations between genes in the genome with this stress. So we can, we can get a finer picture by using the quantitative data from the drone to get a better picture of how that's related to plant stress and genes related to plant stress for iron deficiency chlorosis.
0: Okay, so if you were able to determine that gene 1 and gene 2 are associated with iron deficiency chlorosis, would that translate to other soybean varieties or would that be really variable? What's the benefit of looking at the genomic part of it?
1: It takes a lot of time and effort to grow these in the field if we had a marker associated with the trait of interest for stress tolerance, then we could select based on that genetic marker, instead of having to grow it in the field and take more measurements on it, we could predict how it would grow in a field based on genetic information. However, for our trait, there's not just a single gene that makes it miraculously overcome all of the stress. It takes many, several hundreds of thousands of genes combined to overcome the stress. And so I think there's a continued need to keep testing our varieties in the field for years to come. We can't just find a single gene that's going to solve all of our problems.
0: Did you find any promising findings with this information?
1: For that specific study, we didn't find anything that really stood out that wasn't already known. There's already been a lot of research looking at the genetic component of iron deficiency chlorosis. It's a complex trait, and we have not really advanced that aspect of it, but I will say that Our precision of IDC measurements in the field is allowing us to grow more lines in the future. We're allowed to better select more efficiently what lines to advance in our program, and we're saving our research technicians a lot of time so that they could reallocate those resources to answering other problems we might have in our program or other questions that they have without having to routinely take these notes in the field, they can spend their time doing other tasks. The genetics piece isn't there, but I would say the time savings and the efficiency of finding tolerant lines is really what I'm most excited about.
0: How does that translate to your next steps in the breeding program?
1: Basically, our breeder, my advisor, Dr. Aaron Lorenz, will need to make decisions on what lines to cross, uh, what lines to advance in our program, and honestly, what lines to just get rid of and not continue further. We need to Get rid of the junk and keep the good. How this impacts the farmer is when a farmer buys a bag of seed, he knows about a certain stress in his field. He can actually read the label on that bag of seed. And that label will include information about how well this variety has been shown to perform under different stresses. So one of those would be the iron deficiency chlorosis stress. So he can make selections on varieties that would perform according to where he's growing his soybeans.
0: You know, I think we're in an age where agriculture is coming into the wave of technology. How did we make the jump from doing all these things manually to working with technology like drones to make people's lives a lot easier?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. I would say, yes, agriculture is more than just cows, sows, and plows that people might think it is. We have very large fields that we need to cover and, and plant and monitor plant health and then harvest that at the end of the year. And so it's been a transition that's gone over through time. So like my grandpa, for example, wouldn't have these big tractors we have today. And then we added tractors, we added GPS to those tractors through time and through investments. We've been able to take farming from horse-drawn plow to big tractors so that we can cover larger areas. And it keeps growing and we're not done yet. So we're gonna keep advancing the technology and trying to make everything more efficient and more environmentally sustainable. I'm very thankful for like media, for developing drones and that technology for their area. Now we're just utilizing what's already been developed and applying it to answer a different problem.
0: That's awesome. So can farmers use this technology now? I mean, they can obviously look at their seed and see if it's tolerant to IDC, but... Are they able to use drones and look at their fields in this nuanced way?
1: Yeah. So what you're really asking is can farmers use drones to identify this plant stress and then make management decisions based on that? It's a really good question. Um, For this particular stress, if the farmer can see problems, it's too late. There's nothing that the farmer can do about it. They've already planted their certain genotype. It's too late to apply any other iron product to overcome the stress. They might be able to use information for subsequent years where they would grow on that same land. But I will say that in the past, farmers will do directed scouting and they might not scout an entire field. They'll only scout certain areas or they'll just drive by and get a general idea by looking from the edges.
0: I would just say like this is healthy or it's not healthy.
1: Essentially, and and really what they're measuring is their combine at the end of the season is collecting information on how much grain they're collecting or how many soybean seeds they're collecting at the end of the season. And they'll use that along with soil information to make management decisions for the following year. But now we can get another layer of information with imaging the fields or using satellites even to get more information at a higher resolution in the field during the growing season. A farmer will use drones for other applications than iron deficiency chlorosis, but there are still many applications for drones on the farm.
0: Okay, so it sounds like maybe this might not be as useful for farmers in the iron deficiency realm, but it sounds like the applications in research are really, really useful and helpful for moving this process forward, this breeding process.
1: Yeah, so... A farmer will use drones for other applications than iron deficiency chlorosis. But outside of iron chlorosis, drones can be used for for looking at other traits of interest. So there was another researcher at the U of M that found that he could fly a drone and detect areas of the field where there might be aphid stress. So aphid's another insect that will damage soybean plants. And in terms of our breeding program... It's a huge time saver, not only for this stress that I've talked about, but also for other traits that we can collect from the drone imagery. One being the day of the year in which the plants become mature is a very important trait that we look for every year. Basically, if it matures at an earlier date in the year, we'll recommend that variety to a northern region with a shorter growing season.
0: Very cool. So Austin, we have had a really wonderful conversation today, learning about soybeans and drones and iron deficiency. If people are interested in learning more about your research, is there anywhere they can do that?
1: Yeah. So if they want to learn more specifically about the iron deficiency chlorosis research and phenotyping it using drones, the research I conducted is published in the Journal of Plant Methods. If you search iron deficiency chlorosis, unmanned aerial vehicle, or unmanned aircraft system, you'll probably find it. I would say in in terms of farmers and wanting to know more about plant stress or other traits of interest, the University of Minnesota Extension has a lot of good resources. In addition, we have lots of field days, that I would recommend people attending, seminars, et cetera, depending on the audience.
0: Cool, yeah, it sounds like there is a continuing theme throughout these episodes that Extension and Field Days are a really awesome resource.
1: Yes, um, they are.
0: And if anyone wants to read that paper, maybe I'll post it on Facebook. Yeah, feel just free to the, post it. For fun, light <laughs> reading. But Austin, a huge thank you for sharing a bit about your research today, and I look forward to chatting with you again in the future.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode. This is a segment where you, the listener, can send me a fun fact that you know and I'll share it on the show. I haven't received any submissions yet, but that's okay. I have an endless arsenal of fun facts to share in the meantime. Did you know, in mammals, eyelash length and eye width are correlated? Across mammal species, eyelashes are consistently one-third the length of the eye width. So if you've ever thought that your natural lashes are too long or too short, take a look at your eyes. You can thank biology for that. If you'd like to share a fun fact for me to read on the episode, please email me at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com with the subject line fun fact, and you may hear it on a future episode. Talk to you in two weeks.